For journalists all over the world, reporting true crime stories is a day-to-day -day reality. But what do journalists do when that reality is so dark that it feels like we've reached a new depth of human cruelty? For the first time, a network of 600 of these journalists have invited us into the darkest recesses of their world. They've shared stories of some of the most disturbing cases ever reported, past and present. From Podomo and Vespucci, this is The Darkness Vaults. A note to listeners. Due to the nature of their subject matter, some stories discuss suicide, sexual assault, and may include detailed descriptions of violence. Please take care while listening. The St. Petersburg Sacrifices On a winter afternoon in 2003, a young man named Sergei knocked on the door of an apartment in the grimy suburbs of St. Petersburg. He'd followed a newspaper advertisement to this nondescript concrete building. Someone here was looking for a lodger. The location wasn't great, but the rent was reasonable, and the woman who answered the door seemed ideal. Her name was Tamara Samsonova, just on the backside of middle age, with dark and merry eyes and a tangled mess of brown hair. There was something matronly and comforting about Tamara, a sense that she would welcome you into her home and take care of you. But her friendly exterior concealed a tragic story. The only reason the room was available at all was because Tamara's husband had gone missing several years before. As she crested middle age and eased her way into life as a retired elderly woman, Tamara faced the prospect of an empty apartment. She didn't want to be alone. She wanted to inject some life into these cheerless rooms. Sergei inspected the modest apartment. The room was small, but fine. The kitchen was a little cluttered and had the lingering smell of meat, but he could tolerate that as well. He agreed to be Tamara's lodger and moved in. Some of the neighbours in the building pitied Tamara. They knew about her husband's sudden disappearance in 2000. At first, people figured he'd run off with another woman. Tamara was pretty in her own way, gossiped the neighbours, but she was getting old. Perhaps her husband met somebody younger. But three years on, and no one had received word from him or seen him on the street. People didn't like to pry into whatever explanation the police gave Tamara, but they knew that her husband had been declared legally dead. There must have been some kind of accident. But they also pitied Tamara for her loneliness and the desperate way she responded to it. Sergei was just one of a series of lodgers that she'd welcomed into the apartment. They were all young men, drawn to the safety and warmth that Tamara exuded. Yet somehow they never stuck around. Perhaps that was only natural. They were all bachelors, the sort of urban nomads who drift through the vacant rooms of St. Petersburg. But still, it seemed like bad luck. 
All this aging woman appeared to want was a permanent presence in the apartment, a comforting heat, like a fire gently burning in the hearth. But it wasn't to be. In just a few months, Sergei disappeared as well, absorbed back into the city, and another prospective lodger was standing at her door. This next lodger might have walked to Mara's apartment a little more cautiously than the others. It wasn't the safest district in the city. Just last month, word went around about a gruesome murder right near the building. A body had been found without a head, hands or feet, making it impossible to identify. There was a tattoo on the shoulder, but nobody had come forward to make a positive identification and neither the head nor the hands had been recovered. That made it sound like a mafia hit, a professional killer who knew how to make himself untraceable. But then why were a few pages left on the mutilated body? Pages torn from a book of magic incantations. Why would a professional killer leave such a calling card? Anyway, the case had gone cold already, and the murder gave these suburban streets a definite chill. But when he knocked on the door of the apartment, a friendly older woman answered, and the warmth drew him inside. Fifteen years later, and Tamara Samsonova's search for a lodger was still unsatisfied. These intervening years had seen a procession of temporary men like Sergei, but whatever comforting flame she was looking for never kindled. The men disappeared overnight, leaving no trace in the apartment, just an echoing emptiness. Over time, Tamara's neighbours had become less sympathetic. They knew it couldn't be easy to live with her. As she'd grown older, Tamara had also grown more eccentric, even hostile. Her apparent need for comfort and companionship was matched only by her need to control other people's behaviour. It seemed like anything could set the old woman off on a nasty tirade. Hardly a week went by without a neighbour reporting being accosted and sworn at in the hallways. Those gentle, happy eyes turned ferocious, and it was hard to believe such venom could pour from the lips of such a small and fragile old woman. At night, the neighbours often heard Tamara banging on the radiators with a wrench, venting her anger for some minor disturbance. As the neighbours talked, they remembered a time when Tamara was younger and still beautiful. She would sit at her window, they said, topless, with her back to the street, her silhouette crisply framed against the glass. Gossip spread amongst the residents that this alluring image was broadcast for everyone to see, a sexual promise that hopefully some dashing young man would follow. Not that Tamara ever seemed to have romantic relationships with her lodgers, they noted. It was just a sign of how desperate she was for company. She would use every trick at her disposal. Onlookers observed how far they felt the bright young woman had fallen since she moved into this apartment at number 4 Dimitrov Street. Tamara and her husband Alexei had rented the place together in 1971. The complex was built in the 60s during the administration of Nikita Khrushchev, 
one of many such concrete low-rises that sprouted up across the Soviet Union in response to a severe housing shortage. Everything about these buildings spoke to a lack of permanence. They were mass-manufactured, the concrete poured at huge factories, then shipped to the building sites, where they were hastily assembled. In truth, they were never meant to stand forever. Khrushchev had predicted the achievement of full communism by 1980, at which time there would be no such thing as a housing shortage. But the building that Tamara and her husband occupied in 1971 was the same one standing in 1980 and 1990 and 2000. Somehow this transient structure outlasted the Soviets themselves. Born in 1947 in Uzhur, a small town in a central province of the country, Tamara moved to Moscow to attend the Moscow State Linguistic University. She then relocated to St. Petersburg and met Alexei, who worked at a car repair plant. Tamara found work at the Grand Hotel Europe, an opulent five-star hotel that had been treating its wealthy patrons to the height of luxury since the late 19th century. Its gold and marble interiors seemed even more extravagant when set against the concrete panels of Tamara and Alexei's building. And then... Alexei suddenly disappeared. And Tamara retired. And so began her endless procession of lodges. By 2015, she was living alone in the apartment, her only real human contact the time she lashed out at her neighbours. Were those bangs on the radiators really out of anger? Or were they a distress signal, a blunt plea for attention? Either way, Tamara had nowhere to go when she received word that her building was being renovated. The Cold War-era concrete was cracking and mouldering, and the whole place needed an upgrade. In the meantime, where would she live? Her plight caught the attention of another woman on the street who suggested a solution. An elderly woman named Valentina Ulanova was looking for a caretaker. If Tamara promised to tend to Valentina and do some chores around the apartment, she could stay with her during the renovations. Tamara agreed immediately. The 79-year-old Valentina was hardly the dashing male lodger of her dreams, but anything was better than being alone. In March of 2015, Tamara packed some belongings and moved in. At first, the two women got along well. Tamara wasn't a servant, exactly. Not like she'd once been at the Grand Hotel Europe, but she did the majority of the cooking and cleaning. On especially happy nights, Tamara would make Valentina's favourite dish, an Olivier salad, a traditional Russian potato salad with eggs, pickles, sausage and mayonnaise. Tamara liked her new home. In fact, she liked it a lot. The place was brighter and more spacious than her apartment on Dimitrov Street. The damp didn't cling to the concrete quite so coldly. And most important, somebody else was there. But gradually, the two women began bickering and then arguing, and then fighting. There was a kind of demon lurking in Tamara, 
a rage for control and perfection that would viciously lash out. Everything in the apartment had to function according to Tamara's rules, though she was really nothing more than Valentina's guest. Just the slightest transgression of her idea of order and Tamara's matronly warmth would switch to a devilish frost. She wanted to live with somebody, yes, but she wanted them to act exactly as she liked. When the renovations on Dimitrov Street were finally complete, Valentina was relieved. Now that Tamara had her own place again, she would move out. But Tamara didn't want to leave. Why would she? This apartment was much nicer. Valentina asked her politely to gather her things, but Tamara reacted with a wild refusal. No, never. She would not leave. The desperation in Tamara's voice was surprisingly intense. It was obvious that she didn't want to live alone, but there was something else behind it, a deeper motivation. She wasn't just reluctant to go home. She was afraid. Exactly what frightened Tamara wasn't clear to the elderly Valentina. But if she'd asked Tamara's neighbours on Dimitrov Street, perhaps they would have told her about some of the strange occurrences around the building. On a hot night in June, the shortest night of the year, one of Tamara's neighbours noticed a pentagram and strange writing drawn on the back wall of the building. Maybe it was just some kids pulling a prank, but it was also Kupala night, a Slavic pagan festival in honour of fertility, and the symbols did seem to have some occult significance. They washed the writing off, the red paint mixing with the soap and running away, but it still left what looked like a bloodstain on the building. Valentina knew none of this. As far as she was concerned, her guest had long since overstayed her welcome. June became July, and the women kept their corners of the apartment. Someone had to go. July 26th was a humid morning, and the recent rainfall brought out the smell of garbage on the slick streets of the suburb. A couple was out walking their dog and looped around the back of the concrete low-rises to a grassy area with a small pond. The dog hung around their heels, sniffing the heady aroma of the grass, but suddenly it bolted off, galloping through the dew toward the pond. Its owners called out, but the dog was already sniffing hungrily around some black garbage bags. Its nostrils gaped as it soaked up the smell. Now the owners approached and shooed the dog from the bags, but the dog wouldn't keep away. What on earth was in there? They crouched down and pulled the first bag open. The smell struck them like a fist and they could see the meat caked in blood and hair. It was a bloody stump, a throat, a human throat. There wasn't any head. They reeled back and dragged the dog away, still hungry for the meat. When the police arrived, they found the dismembered body wrapped in pieces of shower curtain and stuffed into garbage bags. There was no head and the torso had been brutally cut open, the lungs pulled out and missing. 
Without a face or fingerprints, a positive identification couldn't be made. But it was clearly the body of an elderly woman, the flesh wrinkled and covered in spots. The victims were very different, but officers who'd been working in this area for a while couldn't help but notice the resemblance to that headless body 15 years ago. Both had been butchered, and both had been stashed here by the mosquito-infested pond. Their first order of business was to question the residents of the nearby apartment building in case someone heard or saw something unusual. They worked their way through the units, eventually arriving at one belonging to a certain Valentina Ulanova. But to their surprise, the elderly woman wasn't home. Instead, they were greeted by another old woman. She was short, with scraggly dark hair and a certain mischievous fire in her eyes. She introduced herself as Tamara Samsonova, welcoming the police as if she'd expected them. But when they asked for Valentina, she didn't have a good explanation for where her roommate had gone. Considering the body parts in the garbage bags were those of an old woman, police entered the apartment to make a search. And that's when they found the blood. The bathtub was filled with it, which could almost distract you from the glaring fact that the shower curtain was missing. Little white shreds were still stuck to the hooks. They took Tamara into custody. The whole thing seemed insane, slapping handcuffs on a little old lady, but she did not protest her innocence. In fact, as they led Tamara out of the apartment and told her they were taking her to jail, she seemed almost relieved, as if a long nightmare were finally over. I knew you would come, she told them, settling into the back seat of the patrol car. It all began with dirty cups. A few nights before the dog found the corpse, Tamara and Valentina had been arguing in the apartment. The place was intensely claustrophobic now, the airless rooms thick with anger and resentment. Even when the women couldn't see each other, they sensed each other's presence very close, too close. And then Tamara found the cups in the sink. They were unwashed and they were Valentina's. That's all it took. Weeks of pent-up rage found their trigger in the sight of the filthy cups, cloudy with the old woman's fingerprints, her lipstick on the rim. Tamara's need for order was shattered. It was time to do what she always did when her companion disappointed her. She travelled to the nearby city of Pushkin and found a pharmacist. Perhaps she pretended to have lost her prescription. Or perhaps the pharmacist took pity on this gentle old woman. Either way, she managed to acquire a huge amount of phenazepam, a Russian-made schizophrenia medicine that some people use and abuse as a muscle relaxant. Too many of the pills would cause someone to slip into a coma and potentially die. With the prescription in hand, Tamara returned to the apartment but not before picking up a serving of Olivia salad, Valentina's favourite dish. Working in secret in the kitchen, Tamara crushed up the pills with the mortar and pestle and mixed them into the salad. The powder absorbed into the heavy mayonnaise, its flavour obscured by the tangy pickle brine. Then she served the dish to Valentina. 
It must have looked like a peace offering, a moment of tender care in their long standoff. And Valentina ate it with delight. It was her favourite meal, and it was her last. Shortly after finishing the salad, the old woman's eyelids drooped, just a vague confusion in her eyes, before she slipped into the deepest pit of sleep and sprawled out on the floor. Tamara looked down upon Valentina's body. Then she fetched two knives and a hacksaw from the kitchen. When she got to work, Valentina was still breathing. The teeth of the hacksaw met the pulsing throat, oxygen still coursing through the windpipe. And then the pipe broke, and the arteries disgorged, and the head came free of the torso. Then Tamara took up the knives. She sheared the body into pieces, ripped the lungs from the ribcage, and wrapped everything but the head and the lungs with the shower curtain and stuffed it into garbage bags. In a large saucepan, Tamara placed the head and the lungs and cooked them on the stove. The smell of meat filled the room. Some suggest that she tasted what she cooked. Then she pulled on her baby blue raincoat, wrapped her head in a babushka scarf, and began the arduous task of disposal. Using every ounce of strength in her tiny old body, Tamara dragged the garbage bags down the stairs, out the door, and along the ground to where she stashed them by the pond. It took several trips. Later. Security camera footage would show her bringing the saucepan downstairs, with the head and lungs inside. But these parts were never recovered. They probably went to a landfill somewhere, mixed into the everyday refuse of St. Petersburg, and lost forever. It would be three days before the dog caught scent of Valentina's rotting body, and so for three days, Tamara lived in the apartment, all alone again. With Tamara in custody, the police searched the apartment and found a shelf of peculiar books. They were devoted to the occult, works of black magic and incantations, and crammed among the books was Tamara's diary. She wrote in Russian, German, and English, and kept a complete record of her daily life. Very few occurrences escape the diary. Reading through it, you find her eating breakfast. Scrubbing the floors, and killing people. Killed my lodger, she wrote. Cut him into pieces in the bathroom with a knife. Put the pieces of his body in plastic bags, and then threw him away. Just a few lines later, and she wrote, slept badly, drank coffee. There was no sense that one event was more significant than the other. The police combed through each book of magic, and in one of them found some pages missing. To their amazement, they matched the pages that had been found on the body of Sergei, Tamara's vanished lodger, fifteen years before. And when they read the entries in Tamara's diary from those dates, they found the description of his shoulder tattoo, the one identifying feature on that headless, handless corpse. In fact, the diary described ten murders over a twenty-year span. So now they knew, she was a serial killer. When her face hit the newspapers, 
St. Petersburg was shocked by its kindly appearance, as if everybody's grandmother was peering out of the bars of the jail cell. To some, however, those little dark eyes were a reminder of something more sinister. In the days after her arrest, a man named Vladimir came forward. He'd been one of Tamara's lodgers on Dmitrov Street. At first, he said, they grew close, forming a tight bond in the apartment. But gradually she began picking at him, roughly accosting him in the kitchen, criticising every footstep in the hall. And then one night, Tamara cooked him dinner and he started feeling strange, very strange. Luckily for him, he was a strong young man with a hardy stomach and he was able to maintain consciousness and drag himself to a hospital. The symptoms pointed to poisoning, but for some reason Vladimir didn't implicate Tamara. He just moved out of the apartment right away, joining the long list of men who'd cycled through in the aftermath of her husband's disappearance. And now the police wondered, had her husband really just vanished? Or was he also a victim of her wrath? The journal didn't offer a clue. But one of Tamara's neighbours said she once boasted of having killed her mother-in-law. The neighbour was aghast, and Tamara said that if she ever came forward, she would cut her up and feed her to dogs. The murder of the mother-in-law was never proven, but the story still suggested that no one was safe, not even family. But what was Tamara's motive for all this bloodshed? The killings couldn't actually be about dirty cups or unwashed laundry or annoying noises in the night, could they? When police interrogated Tamara, the elder offered a cryptic explanation. I'm haunted by a maniac upstairs who forced me to kill, she said. She would not elaborate any further. In fact, it was difficult to extract any coherent information from Tamara. Now that she'd been removed from the dusky corridors of the apartment and could be examined in the bright fluorescent light of the jail cell, police were beginning to realize just how insane she'd become. But the idea of a ghostly presence, a demon hovering over her head, suggested why she'd been so afraid to live alone and why she clung so desperately to Valentina's apartment, not wanting to go home. So who was the maniac upstairs? The identity could never be confirmed, but as investigators found out across the neighborhood, gathering as many stories about Tamara as they could, they heard some strange reports. One neighbor had a theory. She believed that Tamara was enthralled with the deceased serial killer, Andrei Chikolito. Nicknamed the Butcher of Rostov, Chikolito was responsible for the deaths of at least 52 women and children over the span of his 12-year rampage in the 70s and 80s. Born in Ukraine in 1936, he grew up in a state of perpetual hunger. Stalin's agricultural reforms had led to a disastrous famine, and Chikolito would always have the taste of grass in his mouth, as he and his family were forced to scrounge for edible weeds. Later, he would claim that his older brother had been kidnapped and eaten by starving neighbors. When World War II came to an end and Russian soldiers pushed back the German line, Chikolito's town was occupied and he witnessed the rape of his mother at the hands of the Soviets. 
All of these experiences combined to create a perfect monster. Chronically impotent, Chicolito would attempt to sexually assault his victims. When he failed to consummate his attacks, he would surge with murderous rage. He wouldn't just kill his victims, he would bite into their flesh, he would cut out their organs, he would feast upon their tongues and genitals. In the superstitious belief that the eyes of his victims captured his image, he would gouge those out as well. When the police finally apprehended Chicolito, they realized that they'd already executed at least one man for one of his murders. But on Valentine's Day 1994, the executioner placed a pistol behind Chicolito's ear and sprayed his brains across the floor. The butcher of Rostov was no more. Yet his spirit lived on. Several serial killers cited Chicolito as an inspiration. And now, Tamara's neighbor was saying that the old woman was similarly obsessed by his crimes. Could Chicolito be the so-called maniac upstairs, the demon haunting Tamara's apartment? Perhaps the magic spells she cast were attempts to assuage the ghost, or even to banish it. The killings might not be about dirty cups. They might be ritualistic sacrifices, the butcher of Rostov reaching out beyond the grave to claim even more victims. Tamara was just a vessel for his will. In some ways, it did seem as if Tamara longed for a release from the satanic commands of a maniac. At trial, she said that the murder of Valentina was a premeditated way of attracting the attention of police. After all, she barely made an effort to conceal her crime, dumping the corpse by the nearby pond and not even mopping up the blood. She said she considered the idea 77 times, some occult significance to the number, and decided it was time for her to be punished. But for all the overtones of demonic possession, black magic and human sacrifice, there might have been a simpler explanation for why Tamara wanted to go to jail. Her unspeakable actions may have been motivated by a terrible loneliness and an even more terrible rage. A destructive instinct to kill and consume the only other body warming her apartment. All the trouble began when she faced old age she found herself contemplating decades spent in isolation, growing increasingly feeble without anyone to take care of her. She couldn't stay in that apartment on Dimitrov Street, and she couldn't stay with Valentina. When asked why she seemed to embrace her life in prison, Tamara answered, I have nowhere else to live. From Podimo and Vespucci, this is The Darkness Vaults. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. For early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts.